All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Hey, y'all. What's up? We got a podcast. <laughs> well, you know that. <laughs> There's another podcast that we think uh, you as a listener to Ergo might want to know about, and it's called Scene on Radio. It's a show that dives deep into history to tell stories that explore who we really are as a society and how we got this way. In their best known season, Seeing White, <laughs> the show looks at racism by laying out the invention and evolution of whiteness. And in their latest, season four, Seen on Radio retells the story of democracy in the U.S., or lack thereof, showing how anti-democratic forces have always been with us and exploring how we can move toward real democracy. So definitely check that out. That's Seen on Radio. S-C-E-N-E on Radio. Page in my rhyme book. Page in my rhyme book. Page in my page in my page in my rhyme book. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It absolutely is. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do in this here pod is celebrate and showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world, that city being Chicago, for the more equitable and creative. How's uh, how's the world looking for you over there, Dame? I'm all right, man. Just, you know, managing crisis while trying to be in balance. How you doing over there? I'm okay. The last time I asked you that, I was editing last week's episode and I asked you that and you were like, just don't ask. So this seems like <laughs> things have gotten a little bit better. <laughs> I don't even remember last week. I can't. <laughs> you were like, I'm, I'm a mess. Just don't worry about me. And I was like, no, <laughs> we're all, David, we love you. <laughs> oh, so I'm glad the management has emerged. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You good over there? How, how you looking? I'm decent. It's my birthday week. This will come out uh, the day before my birthday, which I'm very excited about. A couple weeks ago, I was very excited to tell you and our listeners that I can now do a handstand for the first time, which feels like growth. However, caveat, uh, I went out to the park to do my first public handstand and fell and injured my neck. Ah, you failed. So... (laughs) It's, it's the public performance, you know. Yeah, I got nervous. My voice cracked. <laughs> oh, and I, uh, I may have injured my neck. So oh. we continue to try to grow, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I can't invert. But what I can do is promise you that we are bringing you a wonderful conversation today as part of our notebook suite. Dame, what's this uh, suite all about? Well, we're coming out of talking about these large notions of abolition, education, and we really want to be in conversation with writers. I think you and I both have a love for literacy, but also are are looking to grow in our own humanity in the craft and practice of writing and see it's so important to like being fully human, notions of freedom, collectivity, all these things that we've been talking about for all these years. And so we, in this suite, in this room, are bringing in some dynamic folks from the field, whether it is journalism, traditional authorship, editing, to talk not just about the content that is written, but the process and practice of writing itself. So on this episode, we have the incredible, prolific, brilliant, Chicago famous... (laughs) Natalie Moore. Natalie is a reporter at WBZ, where she covers race, class, and communities here in Chicago. She is the author of The South Side, as well as Almighty Black Peace Stone Nation, 
and the co-writer of Deconstructing Tyrone, A New Look at Black Masculinity in the Hip-Hop Generation. She was so gracious in this conversation, talking about her process, some of the challenges that she's had in responding to critiques and how she approaches revision and how she's learned to report on the pandemic from all the work that she's done before this crisis. Um, And she also uh, was generous enough to give us a little writing prompt. So through the suite, we're going to try out this thing uh, where we're going to ask each of our guests to share a prompt that they use when they teach or when they themselves as a writer are stuck. And then... Uh, we're borrowing this kind of from Bill Ayers' podcast, uh, Under the Tree, which we helped him build. Uh, we're going to ask you, and we're going to ask ourselves to pause the pod uh, for as long as you want. It could be two minutes, five minutes, uh, and actually go through this writing prompt together. So the prompt that she brought uh, was to build kind of a list, a litany of sentences that begin with, I remember. So it could be, I remember when... I laughed the hardest. I remember when I felt most afraid. I remember when I peed my pants on the bus. That's actually a true story for me. Um, I remember, you know, the first time I fell in love. Um, and, and building that list of, let's say, 10 to 15 I remember sentences. And then if you feel moved to using one of those as a jump off point to write, I don't know, a page or two uh, about that memory. Um, so if you are so inclined, feel free to pause the podcast and uh, we'll be here when you come back. All right. Welcome back. Uh, hope you had some fun writing. I know some of y'all cheating. Ain't all of y'all pause. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I did either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't sign up for homework. Dave. <laughs> uh, but we're so excited to get into this conversation with the wonderful, brilliant Natalie Moore as part of our notebook suite. Here we go. Let me just start by naming who you are, and then I have an immediate follow-up question. <laughs> we are so excited to be talking to Natalie Moore today. So what I was going to say in my intro is I was going to call you a true Chicago legend and call you like true Chicago famous, which is a very specific category, but I didn't want to do that without checking how you feel about those two terms. So what, what, what does that elicit when I say uh, true Chicago famous? Um, well, honestly, I think it means that I'm famous to a bunch of dorks. Because <laughs> that people who listen to, public radio like yeah it's you know it's it's specific I, I do have to tell this this one funny story it was either late last year or the beginning of this year because everything pre-pandemic yep. just is is a blur like was it 1975 yeah. or last year I can't remember yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um I was in the lobby at the South Loop Hotel with some friends and I think that there's a radio station that the, the the stepper station, I think it's 95.1. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think they're they're based there. I believe it was Ramonsky Love comes through. Whoa, the, we are, we are getting real Chicago. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting real Chicago, right? <laughs> That's key. Yeah. <laughs> and so a friend of mine was like, oh, like so you know, he stopped and he came to, you know, talk to us and a friend was like, this is Natalie Moore. And like, she's excited. <laughs> and I'm like, Musky Love don't know who I am. 
<laughs> this is totally different radio. Right. And, but she's looking at me like, okay, you are radio celebrity and here he is. And then he says to me, oh, do you want to take a picture with me? <laughs> <laughs> That's so remote. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so you starstruck? Which, yeah. So, which, which was not the point of this. And then, you know, <laughs> afterward, my friend, you know, I think we all took a group picture or something, but my friend was like, how does he not know who, like it, it clicked to her. I was like, Wendy, I am very niche <laughs> celebrity Chicago. I am not on V103 or GCI. No, Ramoski Love, I doubt that he is listening to WBEC. <laughs> well, one thing that rings true from that story is if you don't think you're famous, Ramonsky Love definitely thinks he's famous. <laughs> <laughs> and he has for 20 years now. He, he's for been sure. asking people to take pictures with him for a minute. <laughs> Shout out to Ramonsky. Yeah, and I was like, uh, I'm good. like that's, that's not where we were going with this. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, then well, we, we'll rebrand it um, as you say, dork celebrity. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever you get. But no, you know, no, the, no. this stuff also keeps you humble because, for sure, you know, I can go to the farmer's market and might be recognized or be in a taxi cab and they recognize a voice. But you have to remember that Chicago is so big and, you know, not everybody is um, tuning in. <laughs> well, I, I'm grateful to have you here because you, you've been a staple in my adult life in the city. And so, you know, you you are definitely sowing, if you're not claiming it yet, you are sowing your seeds for like legend status. Thank um, you. I, I, yeah. I receive it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So let's get to it. We, we, we have a, a tradition of how, now that we've got that out the way, of how we officially start all of our conversations here at Ergo. And it's with a two-part question. So in this time, whether that be this day, this hour, this season, this year, this lifetime, in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? It's mm, a good question. And it's a harder question to ask during the times of COVID. I've been a week-by-week person. Right now, I'm a day-by-day person. You know, just hoping I'm not sick or infecting loved ones and hoping that everyone close to me stays safe and healthy. Um, As a doctor friend told me, as I was waiting for results to come back and thinking I've done all the right things. And she has said, you know, the virus is better than us. Mm. So that gave me some perspective. um, Mm -hmm. It made me feel a, a little bit better. Not that I think, oh, other people should get it, <laughs> you know what? You know, but I mean, I think there's always a, a why me or why us. You know, unfortunately, this pandemic is also, you know, for for people who are steeped in this work, whether they're activists or documenters like myself, like we knew what the cracks were with mm-hmm. racism, capitalism, inequality. But I think what this continues to show is just that individualism that Americans have. And so there are days where it's really hard to feel great about humanity and then worrying about not just the city, but the country and, you know, where do we go and the specter of violence always way around. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm probably not the most upbeat and, um, you know, I always try to treat the world, um, you know, wanting it to, leave a mark to make it a better place. And if it's not me, like I'm not doing the work, but highlighting the people who are doing the work, exposing the the inequality and doing good journalism. Yeah. yeah. And that's all I can really lean on right now. Yeah. So 
a, a question we want to start with you for this series, this notebook series, where we're so honored to be talking to writers. And I think coming out of our last suite where we talked a lot about education, right? Like writing as a form of knowledge building and and learning about the world is so important for us in terms of being fully full human beings, having notions of freedom that we are striving towards. You know, writing is still a privilege, but it is a norm that in some basic way at a young age, you know, in the 21st century, most folks have some relationship to writing, to language, to literacy. So that's kind of a base level for all of us. We, a lot of us don't have confidence, but I'm curious for you, when was the moment that you went from writing to where you saw yourself as a writer? Yeah, you know, that's a, um, a really good observation. And it's something that I teach, whether it's a workshop with teenagers or if it's grad students at Northwestern, I always refer back to this Reader's Digest article. <laughs> That's how long it goes back. Um, that I read when I was in high school, I did a summer journalism program at Roosevelt University. And it was a piece written by Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. And he talked about his prized possessions. And it wasn't his Emmys for, for Roots. It was like this sardine can of like change and some other stuff that he had when he was when he was struggling. And he says he always tells young people, don't say I want to be a writer. Say I want to write. Even though I am a writer, I still really subscribe to that philosophy of you have to do it to be it. Because it's really easy to get caught up in this really not even, I would say, fog glamour of being a writer. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, even when I'm writing books, people think that I'm going to some cabin in Michigan to write. So there, there's a mythology around being a writer. You know, it sounds sexy or glamorous. Um, I don't know if there was a moment that I made that distinction because I read that piece when I was 14. And even now in bios, I, I say journalist or storyteller because I, you know, I, I am multi-genre writer at, at this point. So I actually <laughs> was filling out a new bio and I was like, maybe I should say multi-genre writer. And my friend was like, no, that sounds like, I don't know what that means. Just say <laughs> what you do. Journalist, author, playwright. You don't have to. Yeah. So I said, I said, you're right. So I, I won't say I'm a multi-genre writer. Think of how many brilliant writers there are who struggle writing their own bios. That's something that's very grounding. <laughs> like the bio writing for oneself is a big challenge. Yeah. I want to jump back to something that you mentioned uh, before. And what you said was that for the people who have been doing this work before this current crisis, we knew where the cracks were, right? We knew where the structures that could not hold and were not holding already were. And, and that helps us understand this moment. We've talked a lot when we've had uh, our friend Tanika Lewis-Johnson on about like how all the maps of Chicago are the same. Like no matter what the disparity that you're trying to show is, it always breaks down along the same lines. And I think because your work has been specifically Southside has been so deeply comprehensive and detailed and like generous in telling the story of that map uh, and, and helping the understanding of that to extend to people who might not be looking at those maps all the time. What did having that working understanding already help you understand uh, in the storytelling of this moment? I think it gave me the tools to know how to do pandemic reporting mm. to see the mutual aid that was starting and be able to report on that, um, to be plugged into 
housing communities, you know, anti-eviction attorneys, um, affordable housing advocates, you know, even after the vaccines are distributed, after, you know, we get to stage five, whenever that is, the fallout is still going to be there with housing and economics. Being plugged in to sources to say, hey, can you get me some essential workers? you know, I'm doing a story, uh, you know, this this was pretty early on about the, the pressures they're feeling, um, being plugged into the academic work and the scholars who, you know, very quickly started doing studies and being able to, to bring those stories on air and online. So, yeah, I, I think the work that I do already was in this vein. And so how do you cover marginalized communities, vulnerable. I mean, we actually started calling it a BZ, like our race, class, and communities team, because we do so much of this work, we started looking at vulnerable communities. And then that led to a, a huge project this summer, looking at four zip codes, you know, South Shore, a little village, Gold Coast, Streeterville, and looking at the racial disparities with COVID deaths, COVID infection, safety net hospitals, you know, all the things that those maps will show, all the things that my work, you know, this wasn't a surprise, but it's still important to to document and also to get the personal stories of people because these numbers can sound very big and abstract. And so giving loved ones the opportunity to talk about their family members who died of COVID. Hmm. So not just like having the relationships to get the, you know, the right source, but like being able to do that very human work of creating space for people to tell the stories of what they're going through in real time. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and that seems like a real crystallized like contribution that you see yourself as as making. Uh, And one of the things that Nate, our co-curator for the series, wanted us to ask folks throughout is authors get asked about audience a lot, but in terms of like relationship who do you see your work uh, or hope that your work is in service to? And what do you hope you're contributing to them? So this is something I also tell graduate students. I'm like, don't think about your audience. And, you know, you might have to give a different answer to your book publisher or to the editor who you're pitching because you you want your work to be out there. But if you start thinking about audience, I think you can skew perhaps how you do your work. And, and, and I feel this way about whether it's BZ or, you know, even writing the South Side. I knew this is what I want to say. This is the truth that I want to tell. And whoever comes along on the journey, that's great. And I think that that's actually more freeing than thinking about the audience, because I would say the South Side opened up so many possibilities that I did not think of. For example, libraries. A lot of suburban libraries brought me out and a few libraries made me their one book, one suburb. Now, if I had been sitting down to write and say, you know what, I really want to get white suburbanites to read this book. What can I do? It might have been a different project because I might have been pandering or um, ignoring something else to be in service of something different. Um, I would say another huge surprise has been how many churches I've been invited to mm-hmm. from 4th Presbyterian on North Michigan Avenue to Trinity on 95th Street, integrated churches, white churches, black churches, and that has, at LGBTQ churches. Like it has really 
run the gamut. And it's been great. You know, I think Christians get a bad rap because of maybe <laughs> what we see in the in the media. And and these were all congregations that believed in social justice. Mm. And they were all different kinds of churches and they were hungry to learn and hungry to understand what, what their church could do. I never thought, wow, there's a real church market here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My Sundays are about to be booked. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean, I was even a lay speaker at one church, you know, I got to sit on the, the <laughs> dais and you got to have your little your little I guest picture posture. Yeah, I did. <laughs> gave 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 the sermon. Um wow. I mean most times it's like a, a book discussion after service, mm-hmm. but I usually like to attend service just to you know get a flavor of the church. But I, I wanted I guess if I was thinking personally, I I wanted the the experts and the scholars to say, okay, her footnotes are great. She did the research. It's accurate. But also some of the best compliments I've gotten have been from people who have said, you know, this is my story. I didn't know it had a name to it because segregation is not something that we talk about. I think it's changed tremendously in the past five years, the past 10 years. But it was something that we just accepted as, well, that's just Chicago. That was important to me. And of course, I didn't want anybody to to trash it. I wanted it to be, (laughs) you know, your ego. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I I do want to, in a moment, get deeper into, I think, where your work has placed you in the discourse of segregation and how that also shapes your process and approach moving forward. But I want to pull out that some of the things I'm hearing from from that notion of audience. I'm hearing a really emergent approach and a sort of like, if you build it, they will come and an invitation as a way to to free the work, right? So that you don't have these initial self-inflicted confines of, of where you go. Uh, but then also this notion of like, the air quote experts or the institutions that may be able to validate or invalidate when I hear you talk about like uh, your sources being like on point and making sure that these academics ain't got shit to say. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I'm hearing this real emergent approach to audience and hearing, allow yourself a freedom in the work while also being aware of like institutional critique or invalidation. Uh, So I want to go to like the psychology of that, like before you approach the page, what type of process, whether it's meditative, whether it's training, whether there's more anecdotes from mentors that ground you there on a psychological or personal, even spiritual level, how do you ground yourself in like that letting go that I hear you name it? I think because I've been doing this so long and a book is weightier than, you know, an article or an audio story that someone might forget the next day, you know, a, a, a book is more present, but I think it's muscle memory maybe because all of these things, like you never want to embarrass yourself. You never want to be inaccurate. Um, it's okay. If people come for you, if you're being a hell raiser you know, or, or a watchdog, but I think that it's just something that I am used to now. If I'm trying something like I had never written a play before. And so that's like, what am I doing? You know, why do I think I can do that? I think every writer should have a kitchen cabinet of folks who can read their stuff and be really honest. Can you shout out your cabinet? Who, who, who's your folks? Yeah, sure. Um, Natalie Hopkinson, who I wrote Deconstructing Tyrone with. And she's an author. She's a professor at at Howard 
has been do- doing a lot of ethnography around go-go. Mm. One of my best friends who died last year, and that's hard because Shauna Garcia read everything that I sent, like, hey, can you look at this, this chapter, this whole manuscript? So those have been the the two most consistent. Now I have people say, oh, okay, well, this is political. Let me let this person read it. Or, oh, this is an expertise that someone has. Let me pass it on. I would say those two have been consistently from, hey, can you look at this proposal to look at this manuscript? Um, and then when I get stuck, well, there, there's, there's this little expression, uh, like the four stages of writing, I think is, one, this is a great idea. Two, oh, this is tricky. <laughs> Three, this is shit. <laughs> Four, this is great. <laughs> um, so I think every writer has to, you know, probably goes through those four emotions throughout the, the process. Um, and I, I have one friend who worked in corporate, but aspired to be a writer. And so she gets this new computer. She wakes up early in the morning and she sits down and she's like, oh, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> like, what, what am I doing? She hadn't gotten to that point. And I also will do a mind dump. Like, I won't think, you know, again, that's where it goes into, I'm a writer. This has to look so perfect on the page, mm-hmm. you know, starting in the middle or just, yeah, I, I call it mind dumping. I think Alex Haley also said this too, that writing is rewriting. Mm. Yeah. What's your revision game process looking like? Like, is that in conversation with folks mostly? We we talked to someone recently who their revision is that they make like five different versions of a thing and then choose the one that feels most accurate. Like, yeah. H- how do you approach revision? Oh my God. I would die if I did that. No, like <laughs> five different versions. No. Um, okay. So I think that there's the draft that you have that you're constantly massaging. And then when you're finally ready for someone to read it and then I get feedback and then I, you know, not everything I, I agree with, um, you know, it, it depends on the, on the, on the feedback. And that doesn't mean that I think my writing is so precious. It could just be, you know, I don't want to go in that direction or I take it as constructive. So I don't think that there's a set way. and then you know, you get your editor feedback. So I, I remember with the South Side, I finished the the draft in summer of 2015. And I turned it in, I want to say July. And I thought, great, my editor is not going to get back to me to after Labor Day. Like it's summertime. You know, I had a family vacation planned. And uh, I think she was back to me in two weeks and was like, and can you get this back to me in three weeks? And it was very high level macro. This We hadn't even gotten to the copy editing part yet or like the lawyers and, you know, all, all of that. Um, it was very high level. And uh, so I just took another week of vacation and spent <laughs> that week working on it. But, you know, I love to get editor feedback. Everybody needs an editor. I don't care who you are. You're not turning anything in perfect and you need another set of eyes. Even if it interrupts vacation. It, it did not interrupt vacation. We let, uh, Let's make that perfectly clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to take a little bit of a meta shift, but, but ground it in the South Side. South Side is such an important work for the world, but, but obviously for you, it's 
a little thing where you say sometimes about people's work that really stand out. It's like you're Illmatic in a way, right? Like it's, it's, it's something that has a lot of name association. I feel like it's going to live on. It has a really important legacy. It will probably like extend through the century as a text has become highly cited in a way when people want to talk about how race is constructed, how segregation and space um, address power dynamics and inequity. And so in many ways, this piece about placement uh, has placed you in the world as a Chicagoan in, air quote, the most segregated city in the country or in the world as we think about it. So now for the last five years, everywhere you go, you got to go talking about segregation, right? <laughs> uh, and so I, my, my meta question, as you have become such an important voice through Southside, which everyone should read if they haven't already, and through your work at BZ, how has segregation affected one, the landscape of writing that you've had to traverse, and then also how have you addressed segregation in writing? It's affected me because I'm still writing about it. Like yeah. the desegregation fairy didn't show up after the book <laughs> and say, okay, it's over. Now, now here's what you write about. We were, we were just still... waiting on one good book. That was really... <laughs> <laughs> so it's still a constant. I think that there are things that have changed since the book came out and you know, even the last mayoral race, everybody had to talk about equity and segregation. And that was not the case four years prior to that. And I'm not saying my my book made that, that change. I just think that the discourse has changed. The Metropolitan Planning Council calculating that segregation costs are reaching $3 billion, them having a roadmap to equity. Um, so, you know, seeing civic and political space start to acknowledge and address, I think is important. We've also seen, you know, the city's housing and planning department take on segregation in ways that weren't done before. And what's happening are like very wonky eyes glaze over. For the dorks, baby, you know? Yeah, for the dorks, um, you know, affordable (laughs) uh, requirements, ordinance, like things that, that are meaningful, but they aren't you know, as sexy to march for or um, to understand. So I think that there is more acknowledgement of these issues and more solutions. You know, it's not going to be a 10 point plan. It's, you know, it's it's a lot of things that, that have to, to be done. So I also see myself looking at that, you know, how transit oriented development, like there are lots of, of policies going on in the city that are taking a different lens, a different approach that frankly, I don't think get as much attention as they should. Um, But I I think that there is some movement. And I say that as someone who is chronicling those movements. So I'm still doing this reporting. Mm. How has the way you do that reporting shifted in telling the story in real time as it unfolds? I don't think it's changed a lot because, you know, even with the, the book, You know, I spent one chapter saying, okay, here's how we got here. Here's the policies and laws that happened. But I was really showing how today's segregation continues, even though we don't have racially restrictive covenants anymore. So I think the reporting is still showing those disparities, still showing the policies, but also, oh, well, here's a new initiative that's happening. Also taking stock of things that have the potential to change. So I still think being 
that role that we sometimes think of journalists as like the first draft of history or, you know, just chronicling things that are happening in, in real time. Even if I'm not referencing a past policy in a story, having that knowledge is always going to be there because it informs how I think or how I know these issues are. So I don't, I don't treat the issues as, oh, this thing just, just happened. <laughs> how did that segregationist policy come about? So always having that institutional knowledge helps. Yeah. It makes me think of something that, that Nate also mentioned when we were talking, which is, you know, building that knowledge base starts from this place of curiosity, of trying to understand why a thing is the way it is. And in this instance, and in sometimes similar instances, there's a danger that can be coupled with that curiosity of asking the questions that are being repressed or being kept from, from being asked. For you, was there kind of a spark that lit that made this what you were trying to understand? And, and did how did you navigate that danger, curiosity? Does that ring true on any level? I think journalists by nature have to be curious to do their jobs well. You have to wonder, hey, why why is that over there? Or how did this happen? Why, mm-hmm. why, why does this thing still exist? Then that guides you to start asking questions, looking for documents, doing the work. So that's always there. Um, it's not a moment for me. I think that's because of my training in, in doing journalism. You know, I, I do joke that the South Side is my dissertation for working at, at BEZ <laughs> for almost a decade at that point. And I was piecing the dots because, you know, when you're in journalism, you're you're in a grind. Like you don't always have the space to step back. Even if you're doing a project, <laughs> you're still doing daily work. You're still trying to put out quickly. Um, So the book allowed me to step back and say, you know what, there's a common denominator here that's not being talked about, and that's segregation. I I love how you, the the notion of a dissertation, or or it's very clear that that journalism is is your home base, and that has shaped the ways in which you've been able to to create these important works. Uh, You know, I want to talk about the Stones a little bit. Because in both of your books, what I feel in addition to how important like some of the like the, the politics or the sociology of it is, is just how accessible the pieces are, um, which feel very much like a news story and this notion of kind of like being able to engage a general audience or a general readership. But the Stones, it, one is a unique history um, and, and your book is a unique text. Um, I heard you name uh, that part of how it came about was you were basically trying to read the book, but it doesn't exist, right? Like it's it's a field that's not really there or, or respected. Um, and so I think that speaks to why the book was so important to me as somebody who born in the you know 90s, grew, grew up in the 2000s, as a lot of the infrastructure of the street groups were, were gone, uh, but the legacy was there. There was still this fear of getting like beat up for like wearing your hat the wrong way, right? There was still these like legends that you hear from like, you know, obviously having some family connections. But this is the first text that has really historicized this part of our culture in Chicago, but I think nationally in this type of way. Um, So as a journalist who steps into this authorship, what is different about your approach when writing about street shit? That's a good question. That's a really sensitive thing. It is. is. Does it affect the grammar? Does it affect the research? Does it affect the framing, some of the conclusions? It's almost a new field in a sense. Yeah. um, So 
the book you're referring to, The Almighty Black Peace Donation, The Rise, Fall, and Resurgence of an American Gang. Yes, that's a book that I co-wrote with Lance Williams because it didn't exist. And that's where that, that curiosity comes in. I was looking for a book on the Stones or the GDs or all of them and and reached out to Lance, who you know does this work in this field, and said, you know, do you recommend a book? And he sent a long email back saying, there is no book. Do you want to write one together? And I was like, cool. I mean, I think the Stones are the most interesting. That's who I think Lance had the most connections with, but how they intersected with the war on poverty, the war on drugs, and the war on terrorism just makes them such a fascinating story. And I mean, as a reporter, I mean, I talk to all sorts of people, you know, as I say, from the streets to the suites. Now, you have to be able to communicate with people to get them to trust you, no matter who they are, and explain what it is that you are doing. The Stone book brought um, a lot of challenges, I would say more so after the book came out. So many anecdotes to to choose from. So um, I can imagine a lot of people were not happy. <laughs> they weren't happy if they hadn't read it. Everyone who yeah. read the book was like, oh. So uh, we had one reading at 57th Street Books. You know, a typical crowd, like super diverse. You know, we're in the basement. And um, a group of guys come in in the middle of the reading. And you can feel the tension as soon as they walk in. And then the Q&A starts. This 19-year-old says he's Jeff Ward's grandson. And he's like, did you get the chief's permission to write the book? And I said, well, actually, we wrote letters to each other. And that's the thing. Lots of folks jockeying within the nation were trying to see how much juice someone else had. And often people who ask those kind of questions didn't have juice. Now I'm looking <laughs> at, you know, Jeff Ward's grandson and I'm like, you never even met your grandfather. Like he's been in lockup in Florence, Colorado before you were born. That's not to take away from his family legacy, but you know, he came in stunting like that. And the book wasn't a true crime book. It was also really heavy on, on policy in Chicago and, the forces, you know, in court documents, all sorts of things. And then me being a woman, I I got it. I got it extra too. You know, who do you think you are? You didn't get permission to write this book. It's like, well, you don't need permission to write a book. But the thing about street organizations is that there's such a, a nation state mentality that that doesn't register for them. And then it was like, well, how much are, how much are you contributing to the chief's legal defense fund? And then there were these rumors that Lance and I got a million dollars off this book. I mean, it's just so far from the, from the <laughs> nobody's getting a million dollars for for a book. Um, and so that that reading was was really tension. And, and I said, you know what, if you read the book, he's like, oh, I, I'm not going to read the book. And I was like, well, how can I even have this conversation? <laughs> and then afterwards, people were like, do you need me to walk you to your car? Uh, and then, you know, two weeks later, my dad's like, I heard about this reading at the 57th Street Books. I was like, how do you? He's like, don't worry about how I know the street. The streets let me know what happened. Um, the streets I, are talking about a Q&A. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's a street book talk. Yep. Um, and I had to block a few people on Twitter who were coming at me hard. I was never scared. And I was always glad that Lance 
was there to diffuse situations and he had more credibility to folks because he knew them. He was a man. Um, you know, there was another time we were at a, a another high park reading uh, at the, in the basement of Blackstone library afterwards, this man comes up to me and he was like, well, who are you? I mean, I had been sitting on the panel talking about the book the whole time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he was like, but you're a woman. That's the vibe that he gave at the African Fest. Someone asked Lance a question and he said, you know, actually Natalie can answer this question better because of the research that she did. And this guy's like, no disrespect, but she's a woman. She can't answer this question. So when people read the book, they actually liked it. But there was so much posturing. And I would say that we had the blessing of, you know, folks who were in the main 21 who were still active, you know, or they they knew that we were doing this. So it was less about the work and more about the reaction. And patriarchy. And just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's the posturing and the just like explicit misogyny of that. And I'm curious, uh, in addition to that, curious how you think about those relationships, right? To someone who isn't going to read the book, but in some way feels like connected to this story, knowing that you're telling a story that they're connected to, to people who otherwise wouldn't know about this. You know, there are people who read that book who this was their first time learning these names and and these lineages and these stories. Does that feel like an in-between position? Yeah, I I wanted to show people grace and understand that this is what you grew up in. This is what you learn at Friday service or in your literature that you are, you know, your own nation. Yeah, you're not going to understand why an outsider is writing. But I would try to explain that the story was bigger than a group of guys who got together on Blackstone and that this is really a a global story and again, that would work if they read it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even going back to my first, first book with Natalie Hopkinson, Deconstructing Tyrone, A New Look at Black Masculinity in the Hip Hop Generation. I mean, you learn to have thick skin being a journalist because people will email you, call you like they you're very accessible for them to tell you how they feel. Thank you for responding to our email, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with um, Tyrone, I think that we really learn how to diffuse situations because sometimes Black men would show up at the reading and get ready to chastise us about writing the book. And we'd be like, did you read the book? No. Okay, well, we really can't talk to you about it. (laughs) But they would just be so offended that two Black women were writing this book and had their own. And it it wasn't like the reputation of the book was male bashing or any of these other things that might raise red flags. They just didn't agree with it. And then people also tried to embarrass you. Like people would come and ask the question, but I don't know the answer to that. It's clear that you do. Why don't you <laughs> tell the audience? It's like, this actually isn't a Q&A for you right now. This is an A&A. Like you are interested yeah. in answering your question. Yeah. Right. Or emba- or I'm not embarrassed if I don't know the answer to a question. Yeah. And so I would just turn it. Well, it seems like you know the answer. Why don't you... <laughs> Tell us. Um, How dare you call me toxic? I'm about to do some toxic shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is um, usually the response. <laughs> and again, people who read the book came away with a different perspective. So yeah, I, I learned how to diffuse audiences and journalism 
prepared me, but I would say that first book, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I want to move to a question uh, about process, but I think you're identifying something that's really interesting. Is, which is that people don't read? Which is that people don't read, but the tension of you know Black patriarchy and gender dynamics and how that's also relative to position and like educational institutions and like there's like a literacy divide between black men and black women um and so just like i don't have a full question i'm just like so intrigued by hearing this story of like writing this text about gender dynamics and then having the dynamic of a bunch of black men who did not read it coming up on bullshit with you um and that just resonates to the power dynamics at play uh, um, in in real significant ways. So I won't make you answer a question I couldn't figure out how to ask, Uh, but I do want to move and I want to be sensitive of your time. I have one more question about process and I want to use a little uh, very Chicago analogy. I'm calling it the the bad boy Pistons moment. It became personal with me. So I'm going to assume just off knowing kind of what generation you're in, that you were very aware of like the Jordan era Live tweeting the last dance. Right, 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 right. So I feel like I was safe in that assumption that that you know what's going on. So some of the Jordan mythology, right, is that he was the most talented being ever to touch the court, uh, Uh, but had these these (laughs) which is true, but had these growing pains. Right, the first six seven years figuring out leadership, figuring out dynamic, figuring out how to win. And what the 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 narrative is is that the bad boys Pistons were such an obstacle or such a challenge or revealed so many of his limitations that it changed his process. So he got Tim Grover his trainer, started lifting weights because he just was like relying on his agility before. Got really strong, started having these two a day practices, right? Changing his process, and then you look up and it's two three peats. No one can ever touch him, right? So using that as a as an analogy, do you have a bad boys Pistons moment of some type of struggle? in your craft or as a writer where you had to address, change, intensify, transform your process to get your craft to how strong it is now? Because you got some championships, right? You got some trophies. You got some banners up there. There are some book covers in the rafters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I even got into book writing because sometimes mainstream journalism felt stifling. Mm. You know, one model that I I carry with me or, you know, a guiding light is – Am I writing about people or for them? Mm. And a lot of times in journalism, because newspapers are so, you know, you never know. Racist. I mean, never mind. I wouldn't even just say that. Like it's, yeah. you have people with different reading levels who are picking up the newspaper. Even if we just take race uh, aside for a moment, you're really trying to write for a mass audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sometimes that mass audience means the default is white. Mm -hmm. It's like we become explainers to the white mainstream audience because they are the the majority. In a book, like when we were thinking about audience for the book, even though I said, don't think about audience, but I just just think for our own orientation, it was like, okay, people who like the roots, people who watch Dave Chappelle, like hip hop, Gen X cohorts like that's who we thought would be our core audience although we wanted anybody to come along but there was a certain aesthetic or ethos that we you know had in in that in that moment so it was very freeing to not have to explain so so our our first publisher were these two white lesbians who had 
an LGBTQ press in the Bay Area and one was French and they completely got us completely. And I remember (laughs) the copy editor, bless his heart, and he was doing his job. He came up with a list of words that he was like, I don't know what these words mean or they are used wrong in the book. (laughs) And the the publisher, you know, pushed back and said, you don't, you know, fine. (laughs) Um, But like the word, we use the word koofy. Well, we are not going to put in parentheses what a koofy is, whereas in a newspaper article, we might have had to explain what a koofy is. Mm. Um, Something else that is hilarious. Black people use the word trifling very different from what the word trifling (laughs) means. That's very true. (laughs) Like a small, insignificant. Oh, that's that's so funny. (laughs) Now I'm insecure because I don't think I know what trifling actually means. (laughs) We're not using it right. (laughs) Dan, you just explained it to you. That's what trifling means. That's why we co-host, you know? (laughs) Okay. And so this guy was like, this is not, what do you mean? Why are you using trifling? That's so funny. And it's funny. I'm I'm, I'm binge watching The Crown and, Mm, you know, it's British. And, and yesterday, someone used the word trifling, and they used it in the in the right way, like it means something small or petty. And black folks, we use trifling; like it means all sort. Like trifling, <laughs> it's the biggest thing, right. <laughs> the biggest offense, it's to be trifling, <laughs> right? And it's your tone. Like trifling can mean different things. Like yeah. Ooh, he is trifling. That was real trifling, what you just did. <laughs> and so we were able to get away with that in a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't think I could ever write trifling in a newspaper article without, you know, explaining. So that was my first taste of freedom of independence. (laughs) And um, again, wanting like writing for people, not about them. Mm. And so I've taken that with me ever since. To that point, how has having had that experience and that taste of like, I don't have to translate this or explain this impacted going back into the meat grinder of journalism? I think there's more freedom in public radio than there was in newspaper. But I also am now, a you know, more of a vet, but I also have a, an editor like who like he would get everything that, that I'm saying. He isn't trifling um, is what you're saying? He's, he's, he's not trifling. Um <laughs> But I remember one of my early on at BEZ, I said, a man instead of a man. Mm. Now, if that had been written, you wouldn't have heard a difference. And my editor said, no, it's a man. I was like, no, it's a man because this is in a black context. She said, OK, like she didn't didn't push me. But those little wins, little moments of um, you know, I try to get words in or and I also think public radio listeners like they're curious that they don't know something, they'll go look it up. They're not going to be turned off by hearing an expression that they don't know or not knowing something fully. I don't, at least that's not my experience. So it's, it's been okay. It'd be easy to, to do that. Do you feel any hesitation or just question? It doesn't mean that it's preventative of like giving or providing access or familiarity to something that's maybe like not for them or like being someone mm. that opens that up. And I think about that with the Stones book too, for people who, like we said, didn't have a context for this. It's like, you know, this is a, this is a story that wasn't in some people's eyes, maybe for them to know. Um, 
I don't think I struggle with that a lot because that might be more of a personal essay of something that I would write that mm. wouldn't work on the air anyway. I, I will say there's one, uh, and, and this is such a, it's a real touchy subject. I haven't done anything on um, Eidos. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a landmine. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do I want to do that on be easy. That's the only thing I can think of. And I wouldn't even call that censorship, but it's also sometimes when you're on social media, things can seem bigger than what they are in, in real life. So it's hard to quantify how big a movement that is in Chicago. If I'm just basing it on stuff I'm seeing in my social media feeds where, I mean, what I've been more interested in is a, is this generational Shift. And the person who I would have wanted to talk to about this extensively has died, Conrad Worrell. You know, reparations was always, it didn't have this ADOS baggage to it when reparations has been talked about in my lifetime. And it was championed by people who would call themselves Pan-Africanists. The movement doesn't need me to write about it because I think that there are, are others. And I also think I would be I would have some sort of protection because when folks start coming after folks for writing about stuff, it's like, well, I technically, I don't identify as Eidos, but by their definition, I would be. It's like, are you really going to come for me, come for my grandparents from Georgia? (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to come from a granddaughter of the Great Migration? Like I'm quintessentially Black American by that marker. So, so yeah, that's, one example to the Chappelle point of like laughing for the wrong reason you know it could the a danger is the like outside white listeners or readers agreeing for the wrong reasons almost you know like the way that this can this narrative can feed some of the like yeah far-right reactionary big upping of this thing that might be more insignificant in terms of how many people are actually involved yeah that's tricky dame are there things like that like either on the air or in general that like you're like i'm not this isn't a a, a general audience conversation. It's funny that I'm asking you this on the air. But. Ooh, uh, a conversation that that I want to have a lot, but no, don't know how to have the space, and I don't trust all spaces to have it. Not just because of race dynamics, but even in be- terms of like black class dynamics, which Natalie, you also I think have like outlined very well as like a subtext in a lot of your work. Um, is to talk about the real impact of oppression and how that shapes violence. And because there is this backdrop of cultural pathology, there is no like real healthy space to talk about the unhealthy or even if we want to call them pathological things that that happen within community for very real structural reasons. And so that's a conversation I want to have with like nuance and empathy and from like a place of restorative healing. Uh, But because we live in this like super punitive, super criminalized space, and then there's also this like respectability notion of talking about this violence in a way only kind of affirms conservative platforms. Uh, and so that's something that, that I struggle with if I really want to have the space. And then a lot of people just don't have the right position to it, right? Like a lot of, to the point of privilege, like a lot of folks are coming from a removed place and and then want to engage without any context. Um, and so that resonates for me. I think that's kind of a good curiosity I have for you is I feel that 
media, particularly like the big institutional spaces here in Chicago, have done such a damage over the last 25 years talking about the violence. It has had such racist implications. It has been almost like a propaganda for investment into policing. One, how do you see yourself like counterbalancing some of that? And in addition to just doing the right thing and the alternative, where is there space for like greater accountability for the ways in which media and journalism has shaped these very racist notions of Black violence, particularly here in Chicago, which has become such a symbol? Well, I'd rather answer what you were saying about the nuance. For sure, for sure, for sure. Let's do that. (laughs) Um, I think sometimes what is missing, and this may be what you're getting to, is Black people are also victims of crimes. Non-activist Black folks are Black folks who aren't tied to some of these communities. I don't mean physical communities, but spaces where, you know, abolition is talked about or restorative justice. Um, you know, this is very foreign. One piece that I read that was really good that I think is to this, some of this nuance. A couple of months ago, Reginald Dwayne Bates did a piece for the New York Times Magazine about Kamala Harris and, you know, his journey of serving prison, but also his mother being a victim of crime while he was in prison. And just this I mean, he's the perfect person to bring that nuance because he's connected to communities. He has served time in prison and understanding that a lot of times Black folks want to see people prosecuted for crimes. And when you live in communities that do have more crime, how do you deal with that? So I personally, and I I wrote a column for this in the Sun-Times about the, you know, this is a media platform, not necessarily media role, but you know, don't call the police on minor infractions. But there have been times, you know, what do you do when, you know, if if, if you believe this, but then you kind of need the police. Um, I don't know if I, like we had a, we had a squatter in my grandparents' building. You know, it was a last resort to call the police. Like there was no reasoning. This wasn't a person who was experiencing homelessness. It was somebody real trifling. <laughs> who somebody in the family knew <laughs> and you know it was <laughs> oh this was a second cousin is what we're talking about <laughs> uh, no relation no. okay um but it was it was a situation where and is it a trap house like like could my mom and I go in there by ourselves I mean it ended up being okay and then last week you know I'm in South Shore dropping my kid off at preschool and this woman gets mad at me because I didn't pull over. And then like, she approaches me at the car and then she goes down the wrong way of the street and comes around and blocks me twice from like getting on Stony Island. And then she follows me to Stony Island. And I'm like, what do I do? Do I, this woman is driving close to me. Is she trying to hurt my car? She saw I had a kid I was taking out that didn't stop her. And what do I do? Luckily she stopped, but like, those are, I don't want to bring the police in, but what do I do if I feel like there's imminent harm to me in both of those situations? And maybe those are the things that aren't, and those are just two anecdotes from me, but I I think for some folks, it might seem like an either or like, where's the space to talk about alternatives? Um, when a lot of this language is is going to be new to people and concepts new to people. 
and what stories like yours and so many of these stories of when people speak about what they experience personally, what it, it always speaks to, to kind of some of the, you know, I'm putting on my abolitionist hat, is this absence that we have, right? Of like, there is a need for support, for intervention, for presence, for someone to call as a way to simplify. Uh, but we don't want it to be a carceral military that, you know, has this horrible history and, you know, tortures and kills people. And so, you know, how do we, to the, your question, Kiss, of like this uncomfortable conversation, how do we create more space for people to speak about these experiences, but where we know it won't be used against our community or used against our people to kind of validate this investment into something that is obviously not working and something like that, like a life-threatening experience. I had to move because of a, a neighbor threatening my life like repeatedly in connection to mental health issues. And it was like, wow, he didn't even really commit a crime. Like there's actually nothing the police could do. And I wish there was someone to call and all I could do was move spaces. Um, and so, yeah, that's a conversation I would like to have a little bit more. But I'm just thinking about naming those contradictions also being a piece of the storytelling that can be really valuable, right? Is that you can still hold that belief and not know what to do in that moment. And I think for so many people engaging with these ideas for the first time and feeling like they don't have an answer that anyone can give about what to do in that moment, just kind of naming like, yeah, this is a contradiction that we have right now. It's almost like a vulnerable thing to do when you're like, this is my position is say there's a contradiction, but I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, all right. Obviously we could go forever, but I, I want to ask the last little two part question um, that we're asking everyone in the suite. And it goes back to some of the craft piece, but I think it can also be extended into life. Um, what's the best piece of advice around writing that you ever got? And what's the worst? I think I'll just signal boost again that, you know, think of yourself as the, the verb, not the noun, like you are writing and not a writer. Um, worst advice. I was thinking about worst feedback. Um, I would say sometimes people will give bad advice or give advice that's not applicable and that's okay. I know I've given advice to people that they didn't take and it worked out what they wanted. It, it, it worked out. Um, I did a 30 minute audio documentary off of the South side. Some of the feedback from someone really storied in audio, not a BZ employee, um, really didn't understand the race connection, like was trying to make it more of a universal story. And, um, (laughs) What? <laughs> I know it, it's, it's 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 crazy to, to, like we, to say. we know there are geographic boundaries of what you're talking about, but what if that was everywhere? <laughs> what if we? Or they they saw it because I, I was focusing on um, the part where I say I committed class suicide by buying in Bronzeville and how that damaged me financially, and how I felt like a loser compared to my parents who had made better decisions with housing and achieving the so-called American dream. And the feedback was, oh, so you feel like you didn't do as good as your parents. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but it's also a racial dynamic that's there with housing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take that advice. Like, I don't think this (laughs) this was like a bad person. Um, I, I think that he just didn't understand. Yeah. Some of the issues and, that's okay. That sometimes my dad used to say that growing up because, you know, your parents are always giving you, well, my dad was, Ooh, love your advice. He's still giving advice. Shout out to pops. Yeah. And uh, he would say, listen, you don't have to take it, but you got to listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, you can throw it out the window if you want. Um, 
So, you know, being open and, and listening to feedback, even if you don't agree with it, even if it's not applicable, it doesn't make the other person a bad person. What a what a gracious and generous answer to a question that was designed to put someone unnamed on blast. <laughs> uh, Natalie, thank you so much for chopping it up with us and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Well, you can find all my work on WBZ. Every reporter has a page there. You can find me on Twitter at Natalie Wymore. And you can buy my books at your favorite independent bookstore. And maybe someday another reading in a basement for a Q&A. <laughs> yes. Um, and look out next year, next fall, 16th Street Theater will be producing my play, The Billboard. Oh, um, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you again. Uh, what what a joy. Uh, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Dama underscore AF. And we will be continuing our notebook suite, talking with the writers, reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.